All right. Thank you again. Today we are back with the Black Mills Podcast, Black Mill Archives Podcast, and we have today Ruben Keith Green, and he is the author of the Black Black Officer White Navy. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Rodney, for having me. So, so the the book is is fascinating. Is Black Officer. White Navy. Can you tell us a little bit about the title and how'd you come about that title? Well, I read a book back in 2009 called Black Sailor White Navy by Dr. John Sherwood. He was writing about the Navy that existed during uh, my father's time. My father was in the Navy. After I read that book, I realized that, that only part of the story was being told, and it was largely being told from the perspective of a white naval historian. So I decided after, you know, about 12 years after I retired to tell my story to show that what some would uh, call perceived discrimination was actually real, factual, hard and fast discrimination. So I chronicled my entire career from 17-year-old high school dropout to lieutenant commander in the Navy, decorated officer, uh, and then wound up hitting a brick wall when I went to work for two officers who uh, did not like the fact that I was black. Mm, and we're gonna get into that question, but before we before we get into to, to that that incident, um, where did you grow up? Where Where are you from, and where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in Tennessee, a place called Shelbyville, Tennessee. But because mm. my father was in the Navy, we traveled all over the place. I lived in Virginia, Rhode Island, uh, uh, California, Tennessee, and Florida. And then I started the third grade, so I spent my uh, formative years in California. And when I left uh, San Diego and moved to Tennessee for a year and a half, that was a real culture shock. And then I moved to Florida and joined the Navy a year later in 1975. Mm. So you joined the Navy in 1975. How old were you when you joined the Navy? I was 17 when I joined the Navy, 17, and knew everything, and I uh, turned 18 <laughs> uh, right, right about the time I finished boot camp. Wow, wow. And tell us a little bit about your, your, your family involvement in, in military service. Well, my father was a, a Korean War veteran who left the Army. He had his parachute jump wings. He served in Korea, and he got out of the Army and joined the Navy. He did four tours in Vietnam. He was served on eight different ships. He was uh, a bosun mate, which is a guy that works on the, on the deck. Um, you know, handling the lines and whatnot. And he was also um, an interesting guy because he loved the Navy, but he had a love-hate relationship with the Navy. He mm. uh, actually was one of the few officers or one of the few people that uh, – he's the only person I ever met that went to captain's mass for a violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 117, inciting a riot on board a Navy ship. What? So, all that unra all that racial unrest that was happening in the 70s yeah. my father was a part of that wow did so did he yeah. share some stories with you about that or Actually, he was like a lot of veterans. He didn't talk very much about what he went through. He shared okay. a lot of sea stories, some of which I put in the book. Okay. But I didn't learn a lot about what his career, what his time in the Navy was like until I read the book, Black Sailor, White Navy. And yeah. so I decided that uh, since he didn't tell his story, and he couldn't because he died in 1981, mm. I was going to do my best to tell the story of the black naval officer and the black sailor experience as it was lived, you know, during that time. So I, I interspersed a lot of uh, what was going on in the larger Navy uh, as it surrounded my career and around the larger society. 
So let's get into the let's get into that. As a black man, how what what specific discrimination did you did you come up against in the military? Well, it started right after I got out of boot camp. I went to school as a to be a Navy mineman. I was one of the very few uh, black sailors that entered in the 70s that got a technical school. I scored high enough that I could pretty much take my pick of uh, classes. So I, I decided I was going to be a Navy mineman. There were 26 or 27 people in that class when it started. This was in Charleston, South Carolina in 1975. Mm -hmm. They told us on the first day that uh, most of us would not graduate because the course was too difficult. And they were right. Only seven of us graduated. I was the only mm -hmm. black in the class. And uh, of the seven that graduated, I was number two in the class. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what I started to experience was they were changing my grades and uh, holding me to a higher standard than there were the white guys. I would get low grades on the subjective evaluations of my performance, but I'm getting A's on all of my academic work. Mm -hmm. um, at, the, at the end of the, end of the class, uh, I had qualified for accelerated advancement to E4, and they told me I'd have to go to my reserve unit because they couldn't do it there. And I also qualified for honor roll because my grade point average was above a 3.6. But magically, somehow, my grade point average, official grade point average, dropped to 3.57. Mm. And I figured, okay, three, 3.57, they're trying to send me a message. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I did not argue with them. I just went to my reserve unit. And that's when I found out that they lied to me about the accelerated advancement. And one of my classmates, the guy that was number one in the class, he's read my book, and he says, Keith, I remember your GPA was 3.61 uh, uh, something or other. It was above what I needed. Mm -hmm. And he thought I'd gotten the accelerated advancement and the promotion. So that was my parting shot was to be denied those two, uh, those two things when I left that school. I almost left the Navy at that point, but I decided to come back on active duty, and uh, I didn't get the accelerated promotion, but I, I managed to get promoted fairly quickly because I was, I was uh, uh, knowledgeable in what I, what I was being tested on. What discrimination did you face when you, when you rose up through the ranks like that? Well, there were multiple instances. Uh, I can give you the hardest time for me other than the end of my career. Uh, after about nine and a half years in the Navy, I became a, a surface warfare officer. My first tour, I worked for a great guy. I was a communications officer. And then uh, uh, because he wouldn't allow me to leave that job because he felt I was too critical in that job, I started going down into engineering in my spare time. And I qualified as a steam uh, engineer on a, a, a steam uh, a frigate. I was the only man on the ship that did that because I was going without sleep in order to get uh, – the knowledge I needed to pass my engineering board. And once I did that, um, I left and went to department at school. I was very junior, one of the only two lieutenants junior grade there. And so when I reported to my first ship as a department head, I was still a frocked lieutenant. I was very junior. I was the only black officer on the ship, mm. and I had a largely white engineering department. I had no senior blacks on the, in my engineering department. And it was like I ran into a buzzsaw. They did not want me there. They didn't like me. Uh, mm. They didn't think I was qualified. So it was a battle for the next 22 months. Uh, mm. At one point, uh, at one point, um, I had to file a uh, had to create a spreadsheet to show my commanding officer that the supply officer wasn't ordering the parts I needed, mm. so that the ship could make its deployment. None of the other officers were having a problem. And I couldn't get the captain or the executive officer or the other department heads to back me up. 
So I stayed up all night one night with uh, one of my petty officers creating this spreadsheet. And I went in and I told the captain, I said, look, if this, if I don't get these 25 critical parts very soon, this ship's not going to be able to deploy on time. Yeah. I've been telling you that I'm being treated differently. This will show you. So when you have to explain to someone why this ship did not meet its commitment and get underway on time, you're mm. not going to be able to say it's because I didn't do my job. Mm. Well, that's the problem. And we were able to deploy on time. And then about, I, I added it up at one point, about every three weeks during that six-month uh, Persian Gulf cruise, I would experience an incident that was significant that was, I believed was racial in nature, including mm. having a chief petty officer uh, refuse to follow an order that I'd give him and, and walk out of the space. So I put him on report, and uh, the captain and the XO and his department had wanted me to to just make it go away quietly. They didn't want to hold him accountable, which sent a bad message to the rest of the, to the rest of the crew. Mm -hmm. I'm the tactical action officer on the bridge. I'm respons I mean, in the combat information center, I'm responsible for the safety of that ship and the ability of that ship to fight and defend itself until the captain uh, took over. And I've got a young uh, chief petty officer who decides he doesn't have to listen to me. So that had an undermining uh, effect on my credibility. I had another incident where a junior officer who uh, he, he behaved as typical bullies do. He tried to befriend me, and then he started making noises about beating me up, and I ignored him until <laughs> such time as he caught me in the wardroom by, by himself. We were the only two people there, and he just casually punched me in the stomach. So this was a junior officer wow. assaulting a senior officer. Wow. So uh, I just casually returned the punch, but uh, with a bit more power <laughs> behind mine, and we had a discussion about it. He said I was crazy, and I said, well, look, what's the problem? You hit me, I hit you back. What's the problem? Well, from that point on, he never put his hands on me again. But it was a series of incidents like that, including a major one that I didn't put in the book because it was too painful. Uh, but, I mean, it was basically a nonstop battle to maintain my credibility and my authority. Uh, once I left that ship, uh, things got better for a little bit until I hit the brick wall uh, at the end of my career. Wow. And then what, what did you do after your career? Did you go into the corporate side? or Actually, uh at the, at the time I, uh, I retired, I was not in a good place uh, emotionally because the system, the organization that was supposed to protect me, protected the perpetrator of the, the ongoing discrimination that I faced. So yeah. I decided I wasn't going to work for anybody if I didn't have to. I bought some real estate, and yeah. I bought you know, several rental houses. So I was doing okay as long as I wasn't planning on getting rich. But yeah. after about 10 years, it really started to gnaw on me. So I, yeah. I started writing my book. But then when President Obama got elected and I found out we were in a post-racial uh, society, I didn't figure I'd need to tell the story. Until mm. the run-up to the 2016 elections, when I began to see some of the same behavior that was uh, perpetrated against me, but it was playing out on a national stage. And mm. I thought, this country is going to head to a bad place because the leadership is saying lots of derogatory things about people that look like me or that I have an affinity for. And mm -hmm. I said, this is going to be reflected in the Navy, and I need to start sounding the alarm. So I wrote my book. At the very beginning, I warned about how leadership sets the tone. And I'll, I'll be, be dogged if other uh, senior retired flag officers, uh, Navy and other services, are beginning to sound that same alarm. Because yeah. the behavior that was perpetuated then is now uh, showing up in the, in the uh, fleet. You've got 40% of sailors saying that discrimination is a problem. 
40 percent of sailors are saying that uh, white nationalist statements are being directed at them and uh, a large percentage of the leadership doesn't have confidence a large percentage of the officer corps doesn't have confidence in their leadership you've got ships crashing into each other because people don't trust each other there's just a whole plethora of problems that i'm seeing and we need leadership to step forward and recognize it we've got to deal with this head on rather than pretending like uh, these are not issues yeah did you have any um supervisors or mentors that 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 actually stood up for you during that time when you were going through that? Uh, actually, the answer to that is no. With the with the mm. exception of I had a, a maintenance officer at a, at a uh, um, shore organization who, after uh, one of the uh, repair people had came over and told a lie about what I told him, he chewed me out. And then when I realized what he was talking about. I blew up and I said, this is just a flat out lie. So we went over and dealt with that. And he said, after it was done, the, the, the person that had told the lie uh, acknowledged that my version of events was correct. And uh, that white maintenance officer told me, he said, I'm going to make sure they knock this stuff off. But it was an ongoing thing for black officers. They would set you up to fail or deny you resources. And then when you couldn't get the job done, they'd say you couldn't handle it. But it was all kind of a systematic thing back in those days. Many, many uh, black officers that have had similar experiences. I haven't yeah. talked to one yet that hasn't had a similar experience to that. Wow. And, and did you mentor any uh, up-and-coming sailors or Marines? Oh, I sure did. I, I, I tried to mentor every sailor that I came in contact with. When I said watch on the bridge, I would, I would uh, grill my watchstanders on their jobs, on what their responsibilities were, the the uh, capabilities uh, of the ship and its equipment. I would learn a lot in that process because sometimes they would tell me stuff that I didn't know. And mm -hmm. I had junior officers that worked for me that I pushed ahead to, um, to give them as much responsibility as I could and then reward them for it. In one of my, my next to the last job, I took over the training officer for the uh, import training for ships at Mayport, Florida. And uh, I didn't want that job, but my captain, uh, gave it to me because he told me later that we needed somebody with some 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 gonads to take that mm. over and in mm. fact we turned it around and it became um you know uh, a shining example of what you could do in training and the proudest day i ever had in the navy was when um three-star admiral uh, j paul reason he became the first black four-star admiral in the navy mm -hmm. uh, he was sitting in my uh, conference room talking to my commodore about what we were doing and how we were progressing and he looked at me and he said i wish everyone in the navy did training the way you guys do it here so mm -hmm. that was my proudest day in the navy to have that uh, uh the senior admiral senior black admiral in the fleet saying to my entire command that i was doing a good job so, so what are the most important things you want people to know about you, your family, and your service? Well, what I want people to know is that I come from a long line of military people. My family has uh, well over 100 years of service to this country. My father, his father, my, my grandfather, my father's father died in a VA hospital in Nashville in uh, 1946. He was a mm. stevedore. And so he... Um, 
had some respiratory and health issues related to his uh, service. And he survived the war, but he didn't survive his wounds from the war. So mm -hmm. he died in a VA hospital. And that left my father as a 12-year-old with no siblings and just he and his mother. So he joined the Army at 17, and he was in Korea by the time he was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, so my family has a long history of the military. I love the military. I particularly love the Navy. And I wrote my book to bring to the attention of Navy authorities that uh, you still have problems, and I'm beginning to see some of the same problems that existed in the past, and you need to get a hold of this before, it, uh, before we have some of the blow-ups like we did in the 70s and some of the discord we had in the uh, 80s and 90s. Um, I would encourage anyone to join the military, but any problems that you see in the military, oh, uh, uh, they're just a reflection of what's going on in, in society. Mm, very powerful. Reuben Keith Green, thank you for this interview. Um, again, this podcast wants to highlight and promote positive black men, which you are, and I appreciate you coming on. Um, the the book, again, is Black Officer, White Navy. Uh, Reuben Keith Green, thank you again. Um, anything else that you're doing that you might, you might want to uh, tell the listeners about, and where can they find you, um, website and all that? Well, I just did a uh, forum at Jacksonville University. That's been posted on YouTube. I'll give you the link to that separately. Uh, I'm also going to be speaking at a couple of other different uh, organizations. If you just go to RubenKeithGreen.com, uh, my contact information is there. And if you go to Ru if you just Google Reuben Keith Green, I'm on YouTube. I've got several videos there in addition to the one I just told you about. And I'm on LinkedIn under Reuben Green. Uh, writer looking for minority veteran stories. I want to tell the stories of other minority veterans. I've got a questionnaire that I can send you uh, so that you can tell your own story. Most of the military people, when they retire, their families have no idea what they did, and we need to fill that gap in the literature because it's almost non-existent. I'm mm -hmm. putting together another book about minority veteran stories, and if I can get enough people who are willing to step forward and share their stories, um, from the Vietnam era to the present. We need to fill in that gap in the literature because these stories are almost non-existent. So I'm encouraging everyone to contact me so that we can start to tell our stories. Awesome. You know, I got a quick question, just a quick thought that I thought. Uh, were there a lot of black women in, in, the, in the Navy when you were going through at that time? Well, that's interesting you say that because black women had the hardest time in the Navy of any of the minorities. There was a, there was a, a forum done in the 1990s, uh, mm -hmm. and, and the chief of naval personnel gathered a bunch of senior black and senior and junior black women together, officers. And I spoke to a woman who was in that group, and she said that it was heartbreaking listening to those stories from these women about how they were being treated. I mean, these were all top-performing people, and they were all facing problems. Black women has uh, historically had the lowest satisfaction rate with their, uh, with their naval service. One of those people is a woman named Gail Harris. She's a captain in the intelligence community. She wrote a book called A Woman's War. Hmm. Uh, and it's an excellent read. She gives a female version of my book about what happened to her. She mm -hmm. was in the intelligence community, and I was in the surface Navy. It's an excellent read, uh, and I highly recommend it. Thank you, sir, again, and thank you for being on this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Rodney. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Take care. All right. You too.